Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech Podcast 32. And like last week, we have a theme. It's getting to be a pattern. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and it was another week of wind, rain and work. I'm not sure in which order. There was chaos in the village on Tuesday because it was paper recycling this week. And combine that with 70 kilometres per hour winds and the bins were emptying everywhere. At least with all the paper that ended up in the garden, I now know the names of some of the neighbours. Amazingly, it's already February, and this podcast is going out on February the 3rd, and tomorrow is World Cancer Day. I think it would be pretty hard to find someone who hasn't had their lives affected by cancer in some way. Earlier this week, we had a special newsletter on cancer, including an interesting article on what the cancer research space might look like in 2033. But there were 12 articles and a few more over the past couple of days as well. So we're continuing the theme on the podcast today with four interviews with a connection to cancer. And so our guests are Ofer Sharon, CEO of OncoHost, Matthew Lakelin, co-founder of Traxel, Pierre Bellichard, CEO of Entorum, and Tony Hickson, Chief Business Officer for Cancer Research UK and Cancer Research Horizons, and Daniel Veresh, Chief Science Officer and Co-Founder at Turbine. So now it's time for the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. And first off, I already mentioned we had 12 new articles to mark World Cancer Day, so hopefully you're a newsletter subscriber and you saw all of those. If not, well, the newsletters are free to receive, so please do head over to labiotech.eu and sign up. So in other news, Bivictrix announced positive data from its leukemia study. Abisco Therapeutics received breakthrough therapy designation for a CSF1R inhibitor. And Singapore researchers have repurposed an old drug as a new acute leukemia treatment. Stemline Therapeutics breast cancer treatment was approved. Active Biotech's trial has confirmed the safety of its eye treatment. And we had an article on what may be the next breakthrough in cancer treatment. AstraZeneca created Fraggler for DNA synthesis. Recurve Pharma received funding for its cancer therapy development. And Crown Bioscience is acquiring Indivumed's service business and biobank. There's an article on how digital biomarker assays can harness the power of deep learning from clinical trials to the clinic. Researchers at the University of Zurich have developed a new tool that uses artificial intelligence to predict the efficacy of various genome editing repair options. And we had an article on digital experiments. And you can read all of these and a whole lot more at labiotech.eu. And so on to the interviews. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're concentrating on cancer today to mark World Cancer Day, which is tomorrow. So first up is OncoHost. It's a precision diagnostics company centered on predictive biomarker development for improved patient care. And it has launched its profit non-small cell lung cancer test in the US. To tell us about OncoHost and the launch is its CEO, Ofer Sharon. So OnCost was founded in 2018, and, and the idea was to take technology that we licensed out of the Israeli Institute of Technology, the Technion, and develop a biomarker company. And, and this is what we did um, over the last four, almost five years now. 
And we are still considered a startup company, but I think that we are pretty well advanced with our clinical results and our preparation for launch actually next week in the U.S. And what the company is doing is basically by analyzing plasma samples from patients, from cancer patients. So we do not require tissue. We run our test using a simple blood test for that matter. We combine proteomic pattern recognition in the plasma. So basically, we are looking at proteins and identifying different patterns of expression. Combine that with system biology, bioinformatics, and machine learning in order to support clinical decision-making. And specifically, what we do is we are trying to target very concrete clinical questions or clinical dilemmas that oncologists face when they treat advanced-stage cancer patients. For example, what is going to be the optimal first-line therapy for my patient? The first indication that we are going to launch, as I said, next week in the U.S. is going to be non-small cell lung cancer. Non-small cell lung cancer patients in the metastatic setting, so the most advanced stage of lung cancer. And basically the way it works, we get a blood sample sent to our lab from the patient, which can be collected in the patient home or in the clinic. The blood sample will be sent to our lab, which is located in Cary in North Carolina. The lab is clear registered and call accredited, so we, we have all the required regulatory uh, approvals to run the test and, and actually uh, market it. We get it to our lab, we analyze it, and send back a report to the clinician. And the report is addressing three clinical questions. The first one is, what is going to be the optimal first-line therapy for my patient? The second line, for those patients that have, I would say, less than optimal uh, prediction of response, and there are many of those, unfortunately, we are offering an analysis of the resistance mechanisms specifically for each patient, why the tumor is not responding. And then the third part of the report is trying to address the question of what is going to be the next step? What is going to be the next line of therapy for my patient? So basically, with this one blood test taken before treatment, the oncologist gets an immediate answer to a very burning clinical question, and that is how to start treatment, but also insight on what kind of active resistance mechanisms are relevant for his patient and what treatment might uh, address. The data that we are presenting is collected prospectively in an ongoing clinical trial that is open in over 40 sites in the US, in the UK, in Europe, and in Israel. We currently recruited to this trial over 1,500 patients, making it, I think, one of the biggest trials in our field of autonomics and machine learning, if not the biggest one. And we are also now recruiting patients with melanoma and another subtype of lung cancer called small cell. And the plan for the company moving forward is to add more and more indications and look at earlier stages of disease and more treatment modalities. But basically, this is where we are at right now based out of Israel, as I mentioned earlier, before we started the call, um, about 50 employees. And then uh, we have a lab in Cary, North Carolina, our U.S. headquarters, where the commercial team and the lab team are located. Could you tell me a bit about Profit and how it works? Yes, sure. Profit is basically a test, blood-based test. It is trying to identify what we try to do with the platform is to identify a differential expression of proteins between responders and non-responders. And then what we do is basically we developed an algorithm that allows us to predict whether a patient will benefit from treatment or not. And we do that with very high accuracy. 
in three months, six months, and 12 months. This is a cohort of 250 patients. There's almost perfect correlation between the prediction and what we actually saw in reality. So people told us this, this is too good to be true. We said, no problem, let's repeat and validate the algorithm again. And by the way, this is all blinded validation. Prediction versus actual response, three months, six months, 12 months, same result. And just last week, we finalized another cohort of over 500 patients, same results. So very stable prediction, very stable ability to predict whether the patients will benefit from treatment or not. But this is not enough. This is not enough because this is very important information, obviously, but clinicians need something that is actionable. They want to see the data, but they also want us to answer a question. So what we did is we combined our algorithm with the PDL one level of patients, which is the current biomarker, and not a good one, it's not an accurate biomarker. But basically, we combined our test with the PDL one, and what you get, and this is pretty cool. So we have now basically PDL one positive patients and the profit positive test. We call those positive positive, and we see that those patients respond the same and favorably to immunotherapy alone or immunotherapy combined with chemo. So if you're an oncologist and you're debating how to start treatment for your patients, because the guidelines allow allow you to make this decision, here you know that there's no reason to add chemotherapy for these patients. You can spare them the adverse events, you can spare the cost, you can spare unnecessary medication. However, patients that are PDL1 positive and profit negative, there's a huge difference between combination of immunotherapy with chemo and immunotherapy alone. This is a hazard ratio and p-value that most pharma companies can dream of. Very clear distinction here. So now, as an oncologist, there's a very actionable item here. Because now I know which patient should get combination of immunotherapy with chemo and which patient can get immunotherapy alone. And the same story goes with the pdl one negative patients. So what we created, basically, we moved from a result that is clinical and interesting to a result that can be actually be utilized by clinician on a day-to-day basis in decision-making. And this is, I think, something really pivotal for the product and really important for clinicians. And we got some pretty excited uh, responses from clinicians that, that see the results. We presented those in a large meeting, the CITSI meeting in Boston about six or eight weeks ago now with very good acceptance, and now we are submitting it to a peer-reviewed journal for a manuscript publication. And how do you communicate with the clinicians? Is it sort of like a report? Is it all step-by-step as to what they should do? Yes, this is, so, this is, this is also a great question. So the way it works, and here again, it's very important to be very simple because clinicians tell us, guys, I have 10 seconds for you. When I sit in my office in front of my patients, I can give you my attention for 10 seconds. Your report needs to be very clear and very simple. So the way it works, you send the blood sample to our lab. You will get the report between 10 to 14 days back. And the report is very clear. The profit result may be either positive or negative. If the result is negative and the patient PDL1 level is below 50, this is what you need to do. If it's above 50, this is what you need to do. That's it. 
If you want to learn more, if you want to dive deeper, no problem. The report is long and contains a lot of sections. But for clinicians, very, very easy. Send the blood test, get back a report, look at it for 10 seconds, you know what to do, continue. The clinical evidence is here, and then the analysis of the resistance mechanisms in association with clinical trials is here. But for the sake of decision-making, the first page is all you need in order to make a decision. And as I said, the process is very streamlined and very familiar to clinicians. This is not something new. Blood sample, not a lot, by the way, 200 microliters of blood, of plasma. This is all we need. Analysis in the lab, and then you get back a report via PDF. Later stages, we will add a, a website application, but for now, it's a PDF. How do physicians learn about your product in the first place? Yeah, so the, the, the process, you know, it's, it's, it's a classic uh, new technology marketing uh, and launch. First of all, we are active in a lot of clinical sites. So for me, the initial focus once we launch is going to be in those active sites that are already working with us in the clinical trial. They know the product, they understand it. They were interested to begin with. So I'm going to focus on those. We are a relatively small company. I cannot afford and I don't want to be in a, in a place where I'm launching it, you know, nationwide in the US with 200 sales reps. This is not the objective. Focus on excellent sites, one. Two presentations in meeting. We are going to present data this year. In all of the major professional conferences, uh, the closest one is the AACR, but then in the ASCO meeting, CTC in the summer, and then in the European meetings in the fall. So clinicians meet us in those meetings, we present data, we present, uh, we give presentations and posters, and of course, peer review publication. And lastly, given the fact that this, this is to 2023, we run Twitter, and, and we have a very active social media platform for clinicians and a dedicated commercial team in the U.S. that will target those physicians and talk to them. And I guess it's launching in the U.S. next week. Can you tell me about the launch? Yes, yes. It's, it's all very uh, exciting, obviously. We are going to basically launch it, I think, uh, as I said, focusing on some excellence centers first. But we are going to launch it via, we are going to invest a lot of effort to get payers in the U.S. to reimburse us. We are focusing on that in the way we build the strategy, building the data package, building the evidence to support reimbursement. I don't want patients to pay money out of pocket here. I think that there's a very, first of all, this is not the right way to build a sustainable company, to accept the patients that are already paying a lot of money because of their illness and suffering from usually a, in many cases, financial toxicity, it's very hard to tell them, okay, now let's, you should invest that amount uh, also to get uh, the test. So patients will not uh, will not pay out of pocket, unless, of course, they insist. I cannot uh, say no to, to a patient who wants to buy. But basically, the idea for us in the strategy is go for reimbursement with CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, and later with the commercial insurance plans. It's a lengthy process. We are aware of it, but I think that this is the right way to build a sustainable company. So this is the approach that we decided to take. And in terms of where you go from here, are there any other things that you're working on in the pipeline? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff uh, <laughs> that is going on, actually. So different approaches here, again, still trying to maintain focus. So I mentioned earlier, we are launch launching now the metastatic setting in non-small cell lung cancer patients. We announced last week, it's already in the public domain, a new clinical trial. This one looking at the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting, namely earlier stages of disease. 
This is a collaboration between Oncos, Tiberos, Cotton White, and Tijen. This is a multi-omic trial that will follow up on patients for five years. And the idea is not just to give you a snapshot on what the patient is going to look like in terms of response, but also create a tool that will enable monitoring over time. This comes from the understanding that cancer is not a one-time event, right? It's a continuum of disease, and we need to understand how patients are progressing. Very interesting trial, very extensive in terms of what we look at, and we are very excited about it. This, as I said, was launched last week. We are already recruiting patients with melanoma, small cell, and now and, and soon going to start at the neck and RCC. So the approach here is to expand to more indications and earlier stages of disease. Next, we have a first working version of a very interesting adverse events predictor. Uh, maybe important for pharma, maybe important for clinicians. This is going to get into the clinical trial imminently. We are starting discussions with pharma on how to incorporate our tool in clinical trials. For me, very interesting direction. But as you can see, my first priority was to create a tool for clinicians. This is on, going to come next. And lastly, I'm trying to add more technologies, more capabilities to create a pipeline for the company. So we are, we are trying to license in two technologies from a, universities in Israel. One is a very interesting functional PDL1 test that can be developed for us, other immune inhibitors as well. And the other one is a single cell subset of the immune system that exists in the plasma and is a very powerful classifier between responders and non-responders. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? We, we covered everything. I'll just mention that we had an initial market research with US-based oncologists, community oncologists, academic institutions oncologists, and the initial acceptance and understanding of the test for me is very encouraging, which uh, is something that uh, makes me very optimistic about the future of this product. Next, it's to France, to Enterom, a clinical stage company developing off-the-shelf transformational cancer treatments targeting all tumor types. To tell us about the company and its work tackling cancer is the CEO, Pierre Bellichard. This company has been founded in Paris back in 2012, so more than 10 years ago, on the background of um, academic science. And that has been developed by the National Institute for Agronomy Research. So uh, it's probably something to mention because it's not often that you have uh, biotech companies in the healthcare space that are founded by, uh, at least at the science level, by people from the agronomy space. And the scientific founders have been working on, um, before creating Antelon, on the gut flora. That was the name of the game, uh, gut flora, for some years. And uh, they were exhausted to uh, try to cultivate bacteria by the normal way. So they decided to better understand the composition of the gut flora by doing shotgun sequencing, full sequencing of all the genome of all the bacteria living in the gut. And then by using bioinformatic tools, they have been recreating uh, something they call metagenomic species. I personally call it a bag of genes, but at the end of the day, they have been able to characterize the composition of something they started to call the gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome has been the topic of um, utmost interest in the biotech space, starting back in 2010, 2012. And uh, Anterum has been probably the only one 
in the world not developing around this microbiome technology, not developing live biotherapeutics. We have never developed any bacteria, any probiotic, but rather we've been very interested from the beginning to understand what was the function of the bacteria, what were the bacteria producing. And today we are sitting on a very unique database of 23 million bacterial genes uh, that uh, we have collected from the full sequencing of the gut microbiome of 26,000 people uh, around the world. So we have a pretty good idea of what's going on with the bacteria living in the gut of the human mankind is producing. Because today, at 20,000, we started to be on the plateau and not adding any more uh, new genes uh, into it. And we are today in this company in the process of developing five different clinical trials with four different drugs, especially in immune-oncology, oncology generally speaking, but with, with a focus on immune-oncology. And on the other side, we are as well dealing with the early-stage programs in the field of autoimmunity, but using the exact same platform, uh, which is based on the uniqueness of this uh, very intimate relationship that you have between the bacteria living in the gut and the human immune system. And this is uh, something that is, has been from the beginning of the company of utmost interest for us, because first, uh, what you see in the first days of the human life is colonization of the GI tract, not only the GI tract, but it's probably the, the most abundant population of bugs, of bacteria that you can find in the human body. So you have billions of bacteria that each baby is swallowing from his or her mother. And uh, amongst these billions of bacteria that you swallow in the first minutes of your life, our immune system, our genetic background are picking up maybe 400 species that are forming what is called the gut microbiome. And this gut microbiome is made of 1.5 kilo of bacteria. And this gut microbiome in terms of composition is fixed at the age of three, and you're gonna keep it for your entire life. So the simple principle of developing a bacteria that could be the magic bug that will save a given disease is a nonsense because a bacteria that will be a pathogen for you is probably common cell for me. This is something that we have understood very early on in the company and not trying to develop bacteria as drugs for that exact reason. So going back to this relationship between the human immune system and the bacteria, uh, the bacteria are secreting tiny elements that are called antigens, bacterial antigens, that are constantly expressed by the bacteria. And those uh, bacterial antigens, nine amino acid long, have two means. Uh, the first function of this bacterial antigen is when the bacteria is uh, expressed or is living inside the gut, it's to be recognized. So you have a recognition by the dendritic cells, APCs of this bacterial antigen, which is making the difference for the human immune system between common cell bacteria and the foreign bacteria. If you don't carry this antigen, you're going to be eliminated by uh, the immune system. So that's the first function, recognition, and more importantly, tolerization. It's not normal, it's not usual, that the human immune system would accept bacteria because it's our, its first job to eradicate bacteria from the inside of the gut. So that's the first function. The second function is what is called memorization. 
to avoid the bacteria to cross the GI border and enter into the human body, which is basically the dream of any bacteria. And uh, we are not totally able to control the full property of uh, the GI border. So uh, we are leaking. Sometimes bacteria can go into the human body. And to avoid a complete invasion, this memorization is made of a very specific pool of T-cells that are called memory T-cells. And these memory T-cells have the memory of every and each of this uh, bacterial antigen. And each time they see a bacteria which is not on the right side of the border, they jump onto the bacteria thanks to its recognition element, which is this bacterial antigen. So that's something that we have not invented, but it's something which is of great importance for us in the context of uh, developing new drugs. And what we've been as well reading in the literature is that sometimes bad luck, one of these bacterial antigen has a sequence uh, which is mimicking the sequence or closely related to the sequence of a human protein like insulin or myelin. In the context of insulin, people have seen that if one of these bacterial antigen is so close to insulin that it's waking up these memory T-cells, you have a kind of autoimmune disease which is developing against first the bacterial antigen, but in turn cross-reacting against insulin, and the, the people are developing type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. The same does apply with myelin in the context of developing uh, multiple sclerosis. So knowing this, we have been very keen at Anterum trying to do the same for cancer, trying to make cancer an autoimmune disease by looking into a given tumor, looking at uh, the key element of uh, the tumor development, namely tumor associated antigen that have the unique property of being overexpressed in the tumor only and not elsewhere in the body, and be at the same time driving the tumor development by you know, adding a competitive advantage to overgrowing cells and helping the, the cancer to develop. The problem with immune therapies that do exist already, they are a, a big chunk of the oncology market. But the big problem with immune therapy is that they are waking up, they are trying to expand and help the classic T cells, I would say, the ones that have been precluded by the thymus to attack human cells. So the biggest problem of checkpoint inhibitors is that if there is not a tumor which is hot with a lot of mutation, they cannot attack cold tumors because they cannot bring normal T cells to attack cancer cells because they are human. It's not the case with the memory T cells that we are targeting. What we are doing is taking one of these tumor-associated antigens, the one which is involved into the tumor development, and try a bacterial mimic, an antigen mimic of this human tumor-associated antigen. And this we are putting under the skin of the patient as the treatment with an adjuvant to, to excite the immune system. And what we see is an extension of the existing pool of memory T cells against the bacterial antigen. But since there is a close relationship in terms of sequence, the human immune system is tricked and we are as well invading the tumor thanks to this cross-reactivity against the human tumor associated antigen. And it works in human as well. We have treated north of 150 patients so far, and we see first uh, a constant 99% of the patients that we are treating have a strong immune response made of memory T cells that are different from the classic T cells that you see elsewhere in the body. And these memory T cells are first in human jumping onto the bacterial antigen 
the synthetic bacterial antigen uh, that we are using, and in turn, cross-reacting against the human tumor-assisted antigen and developing a strong immune response, very specific inside the tumor, shrinking the tumor and improving uh, the survival of the patients. So this is, in a nutshell, what we are doing at Anterum. The rest of the company is dealing with, contrary to this, instead of inducing CDA T-cells, inducing regulatory T-cells in the context of autoimmunity. But here, it's not the topic of today, and we are much earlier stage here, except that we have tied a deal recently with Nestle Health Science, the utmost interested by food allergy and autoimmunity. And we are developing, thanks to the cash that we got from Nestle, in that direction. In immunology, we are developing standalone uh, with the cash we have today for uh, different products for five different indications. All right. Could you tell me a little bit about the Mimicry drug discovery platform and how that works? Yeah. Uh, so basically, we are looking for what is the best human targets involved into the cancer development that you could figure out. And once we have identified this, we are looking for bioinformatic mimicry. And this is how we are using this unique property of bacterial antigen to induce a strong immune reaction made of memory T cells. That is the basics and the, the basis of this uh, immune, immune therapies that we are developing to fight against cancer. And how do you determine which are useful in tackling cancer? There is, of course, a, a lot for each tumor. Uh, you uh, can identify a lot of different elements that are involved into tumor development. Uh, so we are making a ranking and the ranking of the importance, the relative importance of each element that is inducing the tumor is related to the potential of being nasty in terms of either stopping the apoptosis of the cells to help the, the cells uh, multiply or inducing uh, a strong development of the cell development. And uh, the second criteria uh, on top of this is the true overexpression of these elements, of these cancer-induced elements into the tumor and not anywhere else in the body, which is allowing us to be very specific in our approach. We are not the only company uh, developing on the basis of this human tumor acetyl antigen. The problem with the others is that they are using the regular pool of T-cells that are very hardly able to attack human cells bearing this uh, human tumor acetyl antigen because of the tamic depletion, which is precluding them to attack uh, human cells. So we are really bypassing this by inducing a kind of um, breaking the immune tolerance that the normal T cell have against cancer cells. Could you tell me a little bit about the EO2401 and the clinical trials that you've been doing? Okay, so EO2401 is the first attempt amongst four that we are currently developing. The goal of the company is to develop in four different directions, solid cold tumors, cold meaning very little uh, mutation within the tumor. So it's very hard for immune therapies normally to attack these cold tumors. And this is the topic of EO2401. EO2401 is dedicated to treat two hard to treat tumors, namely glioblastoma, the brain tumor, and adrenal carcinoma. We have a second program, which is more dealing with liquid tumors. We have a third one dealing with metastasis, and the fourth one uh, as a first-line therapy for the more classical tumors like breast, lung or colorectal. So we have four shots on goal 
And before going to the specific of EO2401, that particular strategy is meant to be able to demonstrate that the technology that we are developing is not only unique, we are the only company in the world using this pool of pre-existing memory key cells to spread memory key cells into the tumor, but as well that we can tackle multiple different types of tumor biologies or patient setting. So going back to EO2401, we have treated to date 100 patients in an indication which is called recurrent glioblastoma. So the patient had a first glioblastoma, brain tumor, uh, that has been operated. They underwent surgery, removal of the tumor, radiotherapy, temozolomide, and then they, unfortunately, they have the first recurrence of the disease, which is happening very often. And we are treating the patient at that time. And uh, what we have seen is that in combination with nivolumab, nivolumab is, is a very used uh, checkpoint inhibitor uh, developed by Bristol Myers Squibb. And nivolumab has unfortunately demonstrated three times in phase three studies that is not able to stop the progression of glioblastoma. So we are using nivolumab here for a couple of reasons. The first one is that nivolumab is helping the T cells that we are creating to penetrate within the tumor because nivolumab has some properties of breaking down the tumor micro environment, allowing then the tumor to penetrate within the tumor. And the second property of the nivolumab is to help expanding, if needed, the T cell that we are generating. So the combination of the two has demonstrated the same efficacy as and even a bit more than the star of care, uh, which is uh, helping the patients to go from six months, the natural history of uh, survival in uh, non-treated patients to eight months uh, with the standard of care, which is today commercialized and uh, which is not very, very efficient. When we have been able to add the possibility to deal with uh, what we have seen in these patients, namely all the patients that we have been treating have demonstrated such a huge you know, penetration of T-cell within their brain tumor that they have been developing inflammation and edema within the, the brain uh, which is not able to escape because the brain is the closed box. And then you have inc increase in pressure inside the brain and uh, the patient were removed from the trial. So once we have been able to use uh, at the same time a drug which is blocking the edema formation, we have seen a huge increase in the survival from six months to 14.5 months uh, with our, our treatment, uh, which is very significant. And today we are in the process of extending the number of patients in an open-label phase two to be able to demonstrate further that we are in the process of helping these patients to cope uh, with their recurrent tumor. The same drug, EO2401, is used in the context of a super orphan disease uh, named adrenal carcinoma. And here we have a demonstration in the first treated patients that we can improve survival at, tw at 12 months from the standard of care is uh, inducing 50% uh, improvement at 12 months in the survival, where we are reaching 80%, 80%. Uh, so we have decided, according to the first interesting data, to start a randomized phase two, which is ongoing, and that, that could lead to a label and approval of fully by 2026 in this uh, indication. Is this something where it's removing the cancer or how is it? Is it removing it or is it just kind of making it so that it doesn't progress any further? It's stopping the progression and shrinking uh, what, what is left. Do you think that ultimately that might mean that it can be eradicated completely? 
it could hopefully put the patient into remission. What we have seen in the in glioblastoma, because we are doing MRI constantly to check for the tumor size development, we see in a significant number of patients a remission of the tumor, meaning that we are decreasing the size of the tumor. And what we are seeing as well is that we can stabilize this over time because one of the properties of the T-cells, the memory T-cells that we are generating, is that they are still dividing and not exhausted over time, uh, which is one of the main problems of T-cell therapies or even therapies, generally speaking. You have exhaustion of the efficacy over time. And we have seen patients with the recurrent glioblastoma that have been treated for some of them more than two years, and they are still benefiting from the treatment. That's very good news, absolutely. You mentioned that it was being used in other areas. Uh, where are you at with the trials for other things? We have a, a drug named EO2463 for liquid tumors. We are dealing with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We have just started a phase two study. We have treated six patients so far. And here we are targeting, it's a B-cell disease. So we are willing to eradicate the B-cells. Uh, we have demonstrated that with four bacterial antigens mimicking four B-cell markers, namely CD20, CD22, CD37, and the BAF receptors, we have demonstrated that we can induce uh, some interesting shrinkage of their tumor, but as well, a huge immune response, which is reaching level of what you can see with CAR-T, but with all we don't have all the drawbacks of the CAR-T treatments. First, we are very easy uh, to produce. You don't have to build a factory to produce the CAR-T. It's a peptidic product, which is off the shelf, meaning that you can basically use it for all the patients, the way it has been built. And the safety is excellent. Uh, this is why today we are so popular with investigators that are uh, willing to use it further in the context of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, in the context of the watch and wait, uh, meaning patients have been identified with a cancer and they are not treated because the existing therapies are very toxic. So uh, usually the doctors are doing this watch and wait in order to keep the patient under scrutiny until they really develop the disease big time so, and then they treat uh, with the existing treatments. So we've been elected as a therapy which is safe thus the possibility to be used as soon as the patient is identified with such a disease that could allow the patient to better cope with the cancer development over time. But we have not seen that yet. We only know that we have the great support of the investigators around the world because of the mode of action and the safety that our drug is presenting. We have a collaboration that started with MD Anderson, the cancer center located in Texas in the US. And with them, uh, we are developing a new immune therapy that has the goal of uh, eliminating the metastasis that you see hidden somewhere in the body that you cannot find. Uh, you can just see in the blood of the patient that they have uh, cancer cells that are representative of uh, this metastasis being located somewhere in the body. What we are doing with them is trying to use our unique immune therapies to tackle and eradicate the metastasis by looking at the decrease in this uh, tumor DNA that they see in the blood. It's called CTDNA. It's becoming something very popular. The FDA is very keen as well to help companies to develop this because it could avoid the recurrence of the disease, uh, which is terrible in patients that have metastasis. And we have a last program. This program I just mentioned is named EO2040-2040. And we have a last and fourth 
program, which is called EO4010, uh, which is about to start a phase two study. It's more classical in um, colorectal cancer, but in patients, first-line therapy that have not been efficiently treated by the standard of care. That's the, the goal. So you see, the goal of the company is to demonstrate that in a number of different instances, tumor biologies, patient setting, the technology that uh, we have invented can help the immune therapies to be used in more than 8% of the whole population of cancer patients, as it is the case today, but probably extend the use from 8 to 15 or 20% of the population. We are not pretending that we will cure all the cancers of the world, unfortunately, but that we are bringing on board a therapy that is using a very specific part of the immune system that has not been touched by the existing therapies that you see, the existing immune therapies, and which is making a very interesting job in breaking the immune tolerance of the human T cells against cancer cells. TrackCell is a developer of integrated technologies to manage the international autologous and allogeneic cell gene and immunotherapy supply chain. The company was at Advanced Therapies Week in Florida last month, and while we missed them there, we did catch up with them this week to find out about the company. Matthew Lakelin is the co-founder of TrackCell, and he can tell us more. TrackCell was founded uh, 10 years ago in 2012, and it was designed, the whole raison d'etre of Traxel is to provide a technology solution to make the management of advanced therapies easier and simpler. Originally, I worked for a company that provided storage and distribution for temperature-sensitive products, and I looked after advanced therapies as part of my portfolio there. And we were sort of supporting some autologous products, and we realized that there was a huge administrative burden associated with the management of these products, um, the chain of identity, chain of custody. And we sort of thought there must be a, a technological solution that we can develop that would make it easier. And that was really the genesis of TrackCell. And since then, we've worked with a whole raft of different types of advanced therapies, autologous, allergenic, personalized cancer vaccines, also at different stages of development, sort of clinical trial work versus commercialized building commercial platforms as well. And really, our customers have got a wide range of interests, and mainly in oncology, but also some other interesting areas of uh, medicine too. You're mentioning the company's been around for a while. Um, Clearly, things have evolved a lot since then. Yeah, well, we're forever evolving our platform and our technology. There's sort of we have to have a balancing act between new features and functions, and then also the necessity to revalidate platforms if you make significant changes to them. So it's always a balancing act between the types of features and functions that we introduce. But broadly speaking, we started off with one software platform, and then uh, a few years ago we replatformed onto Salesforce's uh, technology, and that's just made our system safer because we have a greater level of security it's easier and faster to deploy now based on our other system and then finally it's faster to integrate so when we first started Traxel, we assumed that our software would be a sort of a standalone piece of software but actually what we found now that to make these supply chains more efficient it's actually having connections and sharing data with different other electronic systems and service providers in the advanced therapy supply chain just to just to make that management easier and more efficient yeah could you tell me a little bit more about the partnerships that you have yes certainly so the first 
partnerships really that we developed were with courier companies. So if you imagine our software is managing collection of starting material and scheduling collection of starting material and manufacturing activities and then administration of the final drug product. We also sort of knew the date that starting material is going to be collected. So the next, the obvious integration would be an integration with the courier to tell a courier that a particular time, at a particular place on a particular date to arrive to collect material. So what we have with the courier companies is a, a mechanism where we push out um, ordering instructions for when to arrive and when to collect material, but also we pull through into our system um, what's known as waybill numbers. And what that allows our customers to do is to verify that when they're shipping their product, from the collection centers so they can actually verify that they're putting the correct material into the correct shipping system. Occasionally you'll find a courier arriving with two pickups at one location and so it's just again it's that sort of comfort blanket to ensure that the correct material does go to the correct place. So that's that's where we have and and, and at Traxel also with those integrations around couriers as well we are very much partner agnostic so we have integrations with all of the major what, what I'd say for white glove couriers, those ones that pretty much every advanced therapy developer uses to move their product. Then other integrations include, we've got an integration with the, the Lash Group. They're based in the US, and this is mainly for commercially available material in the US. And what we have with the Lash Group is payer verification. So you see with these advanced therapies, they are um, incredibly expensive. And so when a physician identifies a patient that requires a particular treatment that's being orchestrated by a seller, so that's our product, uh, by Traxel's product, what it does is that once that patient's registered, it will push the inf their information through to the Lash Group. And the Lash Group will verify whether that patient's um, insurance plan can cover the treatment. And if the insurance can can't cover the treatment, the Lash Group will also look for alternative methods of funding for that patient. So again, it's just a way of making that um, supply chain more efficient and reducing the administrative burden associated with that. And then finally, perhaps one other key integration that we have which I can't name names at the moment, but, but there will be a press release shortly where we've integrated with a manufacturing software uh, with a particular uh, manufacturer, a particular CMO. And what this allows the CMO to do is to expose its capacity, its manufacturing capacity to all the users of TrackCell so that anyone who's using this particular manufacturer to manufacture their product, it will actually show when and where those that product can be manufactured. And so those sites can schedule collection knowing full well that if they collect starting material on a Monday, there will be a manufacturing slot available on a Wednesday to make that drug product. We also have some sort of similar integrations with a company called Corba, where we've in integrated with their manufacturing execution system and again it's a way of exchanging data ensuring the pedigree of the supply chain is maintained from very beginning to very end and including those manufacturing steps. Could you tell me a little bit about Acelos and how it works? Our product's called Acelos and sort of interesting when you mentioned about sort of many changes over the time of since we've been working at Traxel. What also we found at the very beginning of Traxel's life is Acelos is cloud-based and so what that means is that you can connect a disparate user group together using a cloud-based system, a web-based system, rather than to have on-prem installation of software. And that works exceptionally well. But at the very beginning, 10 years ago, um, Pharma's very conservative. And it did take a little bit of convincing to use cloud-based systems for management of supply chains and orchestration. Nowadays, as long as you can demonstrate that the system is secure, safe, HIPAA compliant, uh, GDPR compliant, then th there are no challenges there. So it's a cloud-based system. 
which means that anyone with the correct username and password and verifications to log into the system from anywhere that's using a browser. So it prevents the need for hospitals to install new software at their places. And really what it does is it manages chain of identity and chain of custody for advanced therapy products. These are the core tenants, the core, the core activities. The chain of identity is exceptionally important, making sure that the correct patient gets the correct therapy at the correct time. A lot of our customers are providing autologous treatments. So they are where you take a patient's cells, you move them into manufacturing environment, you manipulate them and then return them back to the patient. And it is essential that a patient that's receiving an autologous treatment receive a treatment that's been generated from their cells and from no one else's any sort of a opportunity for cross-contamination in the supply chain could result in a patient at best their therapy not working at worst you might have something like graft versus host disease which can be fatal in, in some instances and so what we do is we maintain that pedigree of the supply chain we allow our users our customers to be able to demonstrate that a patient's drug product has been generated from um, their cells and from no one else's in the case of autologous treatments. But also we manage some matched allogeneic therapies too, where we can demonstrate that the patient's drug product when it's infused has actually matched the biological profile that's needed for that particular patient. And we do this by assigning what's known as a chain of identity number. And that's sort of a, an administrative identifier that's used to associate all other identifiers that's used in these very disparate supply chains. So, for example, for a autologous sort of a CAR-T product, we might be associating a donation identification number, which is awarded at the sites when they collect blood-based starting material. We'll also associate the waybill number within our system. But then also we have those additional checks and balances that our, our software develops, making sure that that chain of identity is correct, but also issuing alerts and alarms. If any sort of particular process within the supply chain takes too long or doesn't, or doesn't go as, as well or as, as ex accepted, we can have escalation protocols in our software to allow individuals with greater levels of authority to approve or cancel certain activities. And it really provides this sort of a strength and depth of management of these particular supply chains. And then we sort of harmonize and coordinate activities between those different groups. I think my sort of the, the one example that springs to mind is that for a personalized cancer vaccine, one sponsor for every patient that they manufactured a product, they were sort of sending or receiving about 600 emails just to get one patient's drug product treated. And then once they implemented a cellus, our software, it decreased to uh, less than 10 emails. It was about five or six that they had to manage per patient. So that kind of harmonization and coordination really does drive down the administrative burden that the suppliers of advanced therapies have with these types of products. I guess most of us have been in a position where we've changed jobs and had to encounter new software. Is your software easy to use and do you train people on how to use it? There are a couple of things. So first of all, at Traxel, we don't just provide software, we have our own support group. So we actually provide training to our customers. Some of our customers will take the training materials we generate for them and train their sites themselves. Others, we will provide that training to all the sites, all the users. The other part of our focus really at Traxel is to make the part of the software that's used or potentially used infrequently as easy as possible. So, for example, these, these advanced therapies, they tend to be addressed to some rare diseases or they're usually treatments of last resort. So that means that a site might only be 
enrolling a patient into a clinical trial or treating a patient with a commercial therapy every sort of uh, four or five months, something like that, sometimes even once a year. So where we've really been focusing hard at Traxel is to make that site facing that the physician using of nurse using um, part of our software as intuitive and as easy to use as possible. So for example, if you log in and it's been used for a clinical trial, very, very simply, if you're a site user, there's a big button in the top right-hand corner that says enroll patient. You know, so it, it just is very, very simple, easy to use user interface. The user interface for the regular users of the product, what we call therapy champions, people, users that are from the clinical trial sponsor or the therapy owner, it is um, a little bit more cluttered, but that's because there's far more functionality, far more information that they can glean out of our system. But even then, we, we do focus on the user interface to try and give individuals the information they need from dashboards. So when they first log in, you've got information about all live patients that are in the system. And then really, we try to make uh, that sort of uh, information no more than sort of two or three mouse clicks away every time. And, and that's something that we focus incredibly hard on a track cell with that user interface and user experience. You were at Advanced Therapies Week recently. I wonder if you could tell me about the presentation that you gave there. Sure. So the, the presentation was looking at the practicalities and pitfalls of implementing an orchestration system. So what we really wanted to do is to sort of share with companies that once they've made a decision to use software to manage their supply chain, what they should do and the way they should they should approach this. So there, there are a few sort of key takeaway messages. I think the first one was to be incredibly focused on exactly what you wanted the system to do. And that sounds fairly sort of straightforward and, and obvious, but what we find is that our customers, they're planning for clinical use, but also they have one eye on commercial use as well. And so really we need to focus on how we can get a system that's fit for purpose for their current needs, but then also have a system that can grow and develop as their products move through their clinical development cycles. So having that clear laser sharp focus on the requirements is necessary. And then also linking those requirements to actual the features and functions to regulatory requirements. So as you build the system, you can demonstrate compliance for those various regulations regulations associated with the management of advanced therapies so that when you do get your audit from the EMA or the FDA you can show how you've got coverage there. Another part that we sort of focused on was having a process owner. Now what we find with our software is it touches a whole range of different types of siloed functions within a pharma company so from manufacturing, clinical, quality, supply chain just to name a few. And what we find is that we need representatives from all of those groups when we're building our software system for our, for our customers, because they will all have a certain degree of interaction with the system and they'll have that information they need to glean from it. But they also need to nominate a, a process owner so that if there are internal conflicts when they're building a system, someone takes responsibility to decide in which direction to go. And then finally, the main point also was really not to look at it as a supplier vendor relationship, um, look at it as a collaborative approach, because the best way to get the maximum value out of orchestration systems is really to have a complete collaboration throughout the whole process. So what we try to do at, at Traxel is 
rather than sort of having sort of document tennis where we're sending specifications backwards and forwards, we actually sit with our customers and write them together. Those those sorts of things we do as an aspect of collaboration. And it just makes it a far easier process, a better process, faster process, and therefore should be more cost effective too. And last this week is a conversation about Cancer Research Horizons, which is the innovation engine at the core of the world's largest private funder of cancer research, and that is Cancer Research UK. It's partnering with Turbine, and to tell us why are Tony Hickson, Chief Business Officer for Cancer Research UK and Cancer Research Horizons, who you will hear from first, and Daniel Veresh, Chief Science Officer and Co-Founder of Turbine. I wonder if you could first tell me a little bit about Cancer Research Horizons? Yeah, sure. So um, Cancer Research Horizons is the innovation engine for the charity. So we are, um, Cancer Research UK obviously is a a major UK charity, funds over £300 million of research every year. And as a result of all that research that it's funding, uh, new innovations arise, new ideas arise. Um, But they are very much ideas and they need to be shaped and formed into a sort of position where we can then engage with industry and move those ideas forward. And so to help with that, Cancer Research Horizons was created and and it helps transform those ideas and move them to the point that industry or investors will engage with those ideas and hopefully then take those ideas on a journey towards products and services that will help cancer patients. And so Cancer Research Horizons itself consists of two parts. It consists of a commercial partnerships team. Their job is to help researchers file patents and copyright their ideas, protect them with intellectual property, and then access sort of translational grants and small amounts of money to maybe answer some key questions and bridge that gap, that value of death, they call it, to the point at which the uh, industry and investors will engage. The other half of the organisation is our therapeutic innovation team, and their job is really to help scientists with new ideas for new drugs, for new pharmaceuticals that would, would help cancer patients. And so rather than just providing a grant and saying sort of get on with it, their job is to actually provide the capabilities Um, Because many scientists in academia, some of them are very capable, but many of them don't have access to the types of facility and and techniques they need in order to progress a new drug forward. So therapeutic innovation will help them on that process, as well as providing funding, will actually provide the capabilities and the facilities in order to do that. And together, that unit is Cancer Research Horizons. We're a wholly owned subsidiary of the charity. Our mission is to help progress ideas. If any money is made from that activity, as a happenstance, it's all reinvested back into cancer research. It's shared with our university partners and any surplus that's made is put back into the pot to fund future cancer research again. There's so much going on. How do you decide um, where to kind of focus those activities? Yeah, well, it's a good question. We spend a lot of time with the academic community exploring their research and talking to them about their latest ideas, trying to judge that difficult judgment as to when is now the time to file intellectual property and sort of protect the idea uh, and when is the right time to take it out of the research phase and into the translational phase and move it forward. One thing we spend a lot of time with is saying to people that you can be a good academic, a good researcher and you can be a good entrepreneur. You can run both in parallel. You can start a new company and you can remain a, a fantastic researcher and publish. You know, they're, not, they're not mutually incompatible. You can do both. And we've got many great examples of that. So we spend a lot of time um, helping uh, researchers to get access to incubator programs and accelerator programs and things like that to encourage them to try and to have a go and to really sort of move forward their ideas 
at the same time as progressing an academic career. Do you have a lot of partnerships in place? Yes, yes, we do. We include a number of partnership deals every year. That means that our total, for example, our portfolio of startup companies is around 60. We've formed about 60 companies so far. We've done about 150 licenses that we currently have active in the portfolio. Um, And these are all with industry and and biotech companies and people like that, diagnostic companies. We also do tests and we also do sort of devices and, and software and data licenses as well. And those companies have gone on to raise about two and a half billion pounds worth of external venture capital that they're, you know, they're putting all that money into developing new drugs and new diagnostics for cancer patients. And that's part of the way we sort of measure our success is, are they able to leverage in additional resources to move these ideas forward? Obviously, the critical success factor for them and the single most important one is how does this affect cancer patients? That's what we care about the most. We recently did some sort of measurements of that, and we discovered that around 6 million courses of treatment that have been administered around the world have been based on drugs that just Cancer Research Horizons, as a subset of Cancer Research UK, just Cancer Research Horizons was involved in commercialising or moving forward in some way. That's over 11 drugs now on the market that Cancer Research Horizons has helped on its journey in some way, either providing drug discovery or drug development capability or providing intellectual property or funding or something like that, or sign the contract. You know, we've helped it on its journey. And I think that's the stats that motivate us. We care most about that because that's real measurable patient impact. You mentioned 60 companies. Hopefully you don't have to be on the board of all 60 of those. No, no, we don't. No, I mean, that's the, to- that's the total portfolio. I think around over 15 of those have already exited. So they've been acquired by pharmaceutical companies or they've listed, done an IPO and are floated on a stock exchange somewhere. And of course, some of those those companies don't make it. And we have to accept, in some ways, we actually embrace that attrition, the fact that some of our projects fail, because it's, it's a mark of what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to go after the challenging and the more difficult and the more niche indications in cancer that perhaps industry wouldn't naturally go after because that's our job. Our job is not to replicate industry. Industry do a great, a great job themselves. Our, our job is to go after those challenging and more difficult things and to de-risk them to the point that industry or investors do feel comfortable engaging. And that means we have to embrace a higher attrition rate and, and see a lot of failure in order to produce the occasional win. Uh, could you tell me about the turbine AI deal and why that happened and how it happened? I'll give you a sort of overview of why we did it from a Cancer Research Horizons perspective and then hand over to Daniel to talk a bit more about the deal itself. So I think from a Cancer Research Horizons perspective, we produce molecules, we produce new drugs, very early stage drugs that could have the potential to help cancer patients. And some of those drugs, it's very clear from the outset how they might be used and where they might be used and for what purpose they might be used. And sometimes it's not so clear, or sometimes the original purpose of the drug turns out to be a flawed argument, a flawed rationale. But you're still left with a very good molecule that could have uses, but you're not quite sure where to deploy it. We've been sort of looking for ways for saying, well, how can you repurpose? How could you find a new indication? How could you still do something with that good science that's been produced? There's clearly some rationale in there, but you're not quite sure where to deploy it. And AI companies, we're having interactions with a number of different AI companies across a multitude of different uses, sourcing new targets, new approaches for chemistry, new approaches for computational biology. But the opportunity to work with a company like Turbine for us was initially driven, and it it may turn into something else in the future, but it was initially driven by the opportunity to repurpose one of our drugs, to almost say, we've got this drug, we don't know quite where or how to use it. 
could you use your platform, your AI platform, to help us find a use for this drug so all that work doesn't go to waste? It's also a great way, we find, to strike up wider relationships with companies to find an initial project and start working on it. And then you sort of learn how to work with each other and that might lead to wider things in the future. So that's how we sort of locked into working with Turbine initially. And then, Daniel, do you want to sort of pick up the story? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as Tony said, the, the idea was to help position a drug which is already close to development candidates. So there is strong data in vitro, in vivo. Uh, it has good properties, but it's not clear which patients will benefit from the drug. So basically, our task is to help with this question of which is the right disease in which the drug can be beneficial. Um, so what we have been starting to do is, and I will tell you a bit more about what Turbine is doing, but the main idea is that we are simulating the effect of how the drug works in various cancer settings across all major indications and we are looking for effects where do we see that the drug has benefit in terms of killing the cells which we think are belonging to a significant patient population and that's the work what we have been starting to do and it's a challenging target and i think that fits to the crh narrative but we are very happy to work on challenging targets especially from the biology perspective because that's our value proposition that we are not a computational chemistry but a computational biology company and our goal is to answer the tough biology related questions so I think from that, this is a very nice marriage of the two birds, basically. And our goal is to help position this drug and also potentially to say that, yes, this is not really something we can solve. And then we can work out together what's the next step for the program. Could you tell me a little bit about your company and what your simulated cell technology is and does? Yeah, sure. We started Turbine roughly seven years ago. We are a startup company. We have more than 60 people now. And it's a marriage of biology, bioinformatics, data science, and, and software engineering. So we are combining AI with biology. And that's very important for us that biology is always front and center. And that's what we use as an interface with partners. So even if we are using AI and some other sophisticated technologies, the interface, what you see towards CRH, but also to other partners, is the biological package we are generating. The simulated cell itself is about to run experiments in the computational world before you actually run them in the real world. So we are building a model, a representation of how cellular decision-making works. So basically, it's a signaling model in which you can run simulated experiments and you can see how the cells are reacting to certain perturbations. And that can be a knockout, it can be a drug effect, it can be a combination of drugs. And you can do this in a very large search space compared to in vitro experimentation or especially to in vivo patients. So we are able to screen hundreds or thousands of different in vitro cells, in vivo cells and patients. And with that, in that heterogeneous population, you can find patterns, which you would otherwise not find in the wet lab. And beside this like aspect on the large search space, our model is a mechanistic representation of signaling. So it's not a black box. You can go back and understand why a certain mechanism arises in the model. And this helps in the translation. So the ultimate package, what we generate, is some kind of novel biological insight with an interpretation. Why is that happening in the cell? And then this helps us to design the right experiments. So basically, Turbine allows to run high throughput experimentation in silico and then run the right experiments in vitro or in vivo and ultimately in patients. And in the past 
couple of years, we have shown that we can deliver in multiple aspects of the drug discovery value chain. We have been working with Big Pharma like Bayer and some others, delivering novel biomarker hypothesis, combination strategies. And we also started to build our own pipeline to really show the validation and move ahead a bit in like building further capabilities, which can be leveraged in collaboration, such as this one with CRH. So now it gets into all of the acronyms and numbers. Only if you could tell me what CRT2199 is. So basically, CRUK initiated this project a couple of years ago, and they have their internal nomenclature for how to name the compounds. And obviously, this is one name of a particular compound. That compound is the lead asset targeting uh, CDC7, which is a protein involved in cell cycle and in some other like DNA damage repair related mechanisms. And it's a very important protein in the cellular homeostasis. So cells are depending on having this protein in them. And beside the lead, there are some other molecules as well, which are like backups, etc. But we are focusing on this lead and we try to model it, how it works based on the target profile and some other properties. And basically, as I already narrated, try to find the right place for it. So in which patients, uh, ultimately, it will most likely work. And so what's the timeline on this and the ultimate goal for the partnership? Yeah, so the timeline, we already started work on it last year. So we are we have already done our first in silico iteration. Based on this, we requested some further data generation, which is partially done by CRH and also done on the turbine side. And this will basically unlock the next phase of the collaboration. This is more understanding the mass of action, let's say, and so how the drug actually works and what are the effects on the protein level. And the next phase is to leverage this knowledge and run the next stage of the simulations and then obviously validate. And that's a very important aspect that this collaboration also contains not just the in silico AI magic part, but also validate these predictions, at least in vitro, but also ideally in an in vivo setting. So timeline-wise, it really depends on how this current data generation will look like, but uh, we would like to get to meaningful results this year. From our perspective, if we can find a way to reposition this molecule and find a route forward for it, then we would then like to find a way to continue its journey. So we would look to either partner with a biotech or a pharmaceutical company and our therapeutic innovation lab. We have clinical stage one, phase one capability as well in terms of moving molecules into man, or we could do a new startup or something like that. We have several routes forward for it, but we've really got to get that data by working with a company like Turbine and then really validate it in that proposition before we can sort of get it back on the tracks to working with industry or investors. And that's it for another podcast, a little bit longer than usual, but hopefully still interesting. Lots of great guests in the pipeline as well for the next few weeks, and I even have an interview this afternoon, which is rare for a Friday. I'm a little excited because for the first time this century or so, it seems, there is no rain forecast for the weekend. Not sure how I'll cope with the excitement. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us, and I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Take care, and join us next week for another Beyond Biotech.